As much as I would maybe like to avoid the topic, I think it would be in poor taste to just skip on by it. I told Jeff Powell, I think on Friday, that this is one of the things that Bible school and Bible college does not prepare you for. How do you handle a Sunday when there is a virus spreading around the country and what to do in response? On the lighter side of things, I owe Joel Porter breakfast. Um, I took, we took an, I made him a bet. We took an over and, what's that? Very unofficial. Very <laughs> oh, yes, it was breakfast. I'm sorry. Uh, we made a bet of how many people would be here. Um, I took the under, Joel took the over, and you guys exceeded what I thought, so I owe Joel breakfast on that matter. Um, as far as that goes. But yeah, it really does beg the question, how do we react in seasons and times like this? What's appropriate? Um, what should our response be? On one side, there is a total neglect and a total ignoring of the facts, um, and a yeah, everything is gonna be okay, you know, don't do anything can be dangerous in situations. Maybe it doesn't even have to be this situation, but there's certain things in life where to totally ignore it or to totally dismiss it or to pretend like it hasn't happened um, actually is an attitude of carelessness, laziness, um, and foolishness in some cases. You know, you might have that bill sitting on the desk and be like, yeah, it's all right, it's gonna get paid for, it'll handle itself, it'll worry about itself. That's all fine and good until the repo man shows up and you're like, oh, yeah, you start to care a little bit harder in those moments. On the other hand, um, you can worry, you can panic, and you can create fear, and you can stir yourself up into this attitude and this mindset to where you start to be on edge, you start to become unpleasant, and all the joy is sucked out of you, and all you can think about is that, and that doesn't really create an attitude or response that many of us want to develop anyways. We see this, um, you know, you go to the grocery store, and the big thing is, can we find toilet paper? I showed up to Aldi's yesterday, and all I wanted was a nice meatloaf, and do you think that I could find breadcrumbs? Like, they sold out of breadcrumbs. Like, come on, people. Like, what are you going to do with that many breadcrumbs for that amount of time, right? So, um, it's astonishing, and the panic, and the things that set in, and that nature that sets in. Um, so, how are we to respond when things are happening, when there's a reality that there is something going around that is being transferred and contagious and is harmful to a spectrum of people, and how do we care for them and love them and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, but at the same time, not panicking beyond control and putting ourselves in a place of worry and fear and allowing it to wreck and ruin our daily lives? How do we look past the, well, it doesn't affect me attitude and it doesn't bother me and it hasn't done anything to me, but still foster an attitude of care and caution and times for others? And at the same time, how do we prevent it from becoming obsessive, ongoing, and fear-creating thing that runs our lives? And so this morning, I think the first thing that we must do in all situations is look to the word of God and we trust it, right? Ecclesiastes tells us there is nothing new under the sun right? So God's not looking at this going, oh, surprise, oh, shoot, what am I going to do, right? And this isn't the first time that God's people have faced certain trials, difficulties, and things, and so we're still believing that in his word is sufficient to meet the answers and supply the things that we need in these times. And so we're looking to his hand, we're looking to his word, and we're going to trust it to allow us to guide us into these things and into these seasons. So let us pray. God, in our times of chaos, we would do well to remember your disciples on the boat, worried about the storms, their lives, and fretting over what was going to happen. But God, we recall your steadiness and your command over the seas to calm. We thank you that you are ruling over us, 
We also look not only at our own lives and how these issues will affect us, but we look to our brothers, our sisters, our friends, and our families, and we take advantage of the opportunity to demonstrate your care and your compassion. Lord, for where we have abundance, may we give. Where we have resources, may we share. And where we can lend a helping hand, let us give with grace. We pray this morning that we would open your word and let it bring peace to our hearts. Amen. No joke, um, as I planned to preach and to prepare, I wanted to do Philippians 1, 2, 3, and 4 in a four-week part, and on Philippians 4, I knew four weeks ago, five weeks ago, before all of this ever became a thing that I wanted to preach on this passage, and I don't know that there's too many passages more fitting for what is going on. And so if you want to follow along, it will be on the screen behind you, but we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4, going through to verse 7. We're going to read it all, and then we're just going to take it one verse at a time. Kyle, go ahead. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. How many of you start singing that song, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah. Um, It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Looking at verse 4, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoicing is showing delight. It's being joyful. It's taking joy and delighting in something. And this simply isn't just a whimsical feeling that just happens and like, you know what, today I feel like rejoicing. Or it's not just a feeling you get or something that arrives to you and it's like, well, you know what, today I feel like rejoicing. This situation, I don't feel like rejoicing. It's a thing that we direct our soul and our will to do. It's a choice that we willfully make, that we are going to rejoice regardless of what is going on. I remembered, I think it's in Psalm 103, where David is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? And so David is reminding his soul, he's speaking to his soul, he's telling his soul to bless the Lord. In the same sense here, we, t- we take the same command and imperative that we're telling ourselves to rejoice always. Paul, in earlier chapter, has just, or earlier in chapter 4, has just got done talking um, to a few people that were in dispute and says this, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sinchi to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal um, yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. And so there was this feud going on. There was this dispute going on. And he's telling right after that, he's saying, rejoice, right? And we've got to remind ourselves what's going on in the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison. He's in jail. The people are worried. They're fearful. They're fretting over what's going on. There's others rising up, creating division, preaching another gospel. They have some enemies trying to get at them. And so Paul is saying, all this is going on. All of this is stirring. And what's Paul's attitude, right? What's his heart? What's he goes back to again? He's saying, in all of that, and despite this going on, he's saying, rejoice. Take joy. Take delight. Always in all the seasons, in every situation, right? And so he goes goes back and hits this theme again, right? Chapter four is his final exhortation, his final commands, his final things that he wishes for the Philippian believers to get across. He's saying, despite what's going on in your life, despite what's going on in my life, despite what you might think or feel or despite who's preaching against you, take joy in those things. The church feels for Paul and they have cares and concerns about what's going on, but he reminds them to rejoice. And listen, this doesn't mean that every season 
um, or the circumstances or the things are joyful or glad or you have to be happy to be there, right? Paul's not saying that you have to enjoy um, every season, right? It's not like you're saying, yes, family dysfunction, woohoo, I'm rejoicing, I'm taking delight in that. Thank you, God, for that stress at work. I am so glad that you have placed me in that season. Lord, I'm thankful that I cannot find toilet paper at the store because of some darn coronavirus. <laughs> it's not a proverbial pie in the sky. It's a command that despite those things and in, in, in light of all of those things, you still have reason to rejoice, not because of the circumstances, not because of the situations, but because of, of who he is in them. That he is the God above every season. I keep going back to it over and over. I hope that, you know, it echoes in. Paul said, or not Paul, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, right? There is a time and a season for everything. Guess what? But even in the tearing down, even in the dying, and even in the seasons of mourning, he is still Lord and he still reigns over that season. And for that, you are to take joy and take delight, not in the circumstance or the situation that you find yourself in, but in him. Because of what Christ has done for you, because what Paul has said in the previous chapters of Philippians, that you know how fellowship, relationship, you know how union, he is the one that paid for your sins and has brought you into his kingdom and made you his child and has called you to be one of his own. And that you can rejoice in in any season that you find yourself in. And that's enough to take delight in regardless of what's going on in your life. That God is greater than your circumstances, that he is the one that is in possession of the whole earth. And so that marriage that is struggling, God is still able to work something in it. For the child that has walked away in the Lord, the Holy Spirit is still pursuing and chasing after him. For the problems and the things that you need answers to and that you need solutions to, he is still sufficient and able to provide them. He lives, cares, and delivers on those things. And for that reason, we can have joy and we can take delight and we rejoice knowing that he is still God and we still worthy of our worship and praise. Paul continues on with more commands and more things for us to follow and do. And this is one of those verses, I gotta admit, when you read it the first time, you're like, yeah, 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 I need to get on to the, to the bigger and the better stuff and the other stuff. Why is that in there? But then you pause and you look at what it means. It says, let your gentle, verse five, it says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And at first, you're like, well, I hear gentleness a lot. I hear, often hear my wife saying that to our two-year-old in response to our three-month-old, you know? Eh, be gentle, right? Be gentle. You know, she's three. You're going to harm her. You can't sit on her. That's going to crush her. Um, you have to be gentle. And at first, that's kind of what comes to mind, and that's kind of what we get. You know, we need to be gentle. We think soft or caring or kind. Um, but what's really being said here in another version or another, if you look at it, I forget which version it is, but it says, let your reasonableness, right, be reasonable with one another. And what Paul's really getting at to here is these disputes, this bickering, this tension between people is saying, let your conduct towards others, let your behavior towards others, let your frustrations and your things towards others be gentle and reasonable. Paul, as I've said the last three weeks, is desiring a unity in the church, even though the church might be at odds, even though they may, some might see it this way and some see it that way, even though there might be group A and group B. He's saying, let your attitude towards each other be reasonable and gentle and favorable, withstanding other people's faults, right? That's why he says in Philippians chapter two, says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, that's my favorite verse to quote to teenagers, right? Or at camp, you know, when they complain about this or they complain about this. The, Paul's saying, do all things, whether what you do, do it without grumbling and complaining, right? That's, the, that's not a Pastor Ryan thing. That's a command from Christ that in your dealings with one another, in your interactions with whoever it may be, whatever side of the fence that they may land on, his command is this, to be reasonable, gentle, and favorable towards others. 
what he's really asking is this. Are you allow, we allow the other side to be right? Or do you need to be right so much that it, you become contentious in conflict and you just gotta like hammer it into them? Are you willing to deal and put up with other people's faults and flaws and shortcomings? I think of it this way. Um, Keith Yoder did some training uh, in October, and he says, oftentimes what you'll find is this, right? You'll have, you have a, say you have a box sitting in the middle, and we'll just use the Bible today, right? And you have one side that sees the box only through this lens, right? So you see something that says, Holy Bible, New International Version, and it has all the writing, and I'll see it over here, and I'll stand on this side, and I'll look at it, and I was like, I don't see anything that you're talking about. I see just a completely blank red backing. And we can look at the things from two different lenses, and we can, sometimes this happens in church, right? You see one thing, I see another thing, and it's like, well, come on, God, how is that supposed to work, right? But he's saying, more often than not, right, we're staring at the same thing, and there's also like a point C up here that rises above, and we must be willing to yield and to surrender to that, right? We have more grace-oriented people that want the grace, and you need to show the grace and the love of God, and then you have those that stand for truth, and you know, you must declare the truth, and it's all about the truth. Guess what? They find their meaning in the person of Jesus Christ that is full of grace and truth. You have those that want to extend mercy and those that are kind and compassionate. You know, those that want to stand for justice and you got to uphold what is right. But guess what? They find their fixed point in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's here and saying, he's talking about Yodi and Cynthia who are fighting. He's saying, be reasonable with each other. Be favorable towards one another. Recognize, here's what happens, right? Because the moment that you dismiss someone or the moment that you disregard someone because they think differently than you or they don't see eye to eye with you or they've committed one flaw or one thing, then you've now set up a boundary and a standard that, hey, they can think the same way about you and feel the same way about you the moment that you screw up. So if you're holding bitterness against someone else because of their sin or their thing, um, and they, you know, I'm not going to trust them because they did that, then guess what? The moment that you screw up and the moment that you don't get it right, you have now given them a standard to hold it against you, and that attitude does not work at all. So Paul's saying, be reasonable towards one another. Let you, be gentle towards one another. Be favorable. Allow others, right? Work together. And why? Why is this? And what's the motivation behind this? And it says, the Lord is near. At first glance, you might think, well, does that mean that the Lord is close, right? In proximity, that he's present and that he's near and he's, you know, there to where I can touch him. And while it's true, and we'll talk about that a little bit later that the Lord is near and he is present and he is close by and he isn't distant and he isn't far removed. That's not what Paul means here when he says the Lord is near. What he's talking about is the, coming, the second coming of Christ, the judgment day of Christ, that the Lord is near. The day of the Lord's return is near. And so he's saying, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. Why? because the Lord's return is near, because he's returning and he's coming and he's gonna set things free and he's gonna set things right. And Paul really is asking this question, right? That if, Jesus, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow and he gave us the date, the time, and the place, what things would rise to the top of what really matter and what things would fall by the wayside because they're inconsequential and they don't add anything to what you're living now? And Paul's saying the day of the Lord is near. So those things that don't have any eternal weight, they don't have any eternal value that are petty and that are cheap, he's saying let them to the side and let the things that matter, that have eternal consequence, and the things that need to be in the Lord's hand and that he will handle, let those things rise to the top. Some of those things might be vengeance or bitterness. So he says in Romans 12, I think it's on the next slide, Kyle, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so he's saying, I'm coming and I'm gonna judge and I'm gonna rule and I'm gonna reign. And you're not to worry about vengeance or getting rights or settling your scores. He's gonna come and he's gonna settle them. And we're to trust him with that. And what are we to do in response? To at all possible, to live at peace with everyone. To not repay them with what they've given to us, but to live at peace. For the day of the Lord is coming. For those that have mistreated you, the ones that may be causing you agony, the ones that you wish that you could exact revenge on, trust that he's coming and the day of the Lord is near. Now some of you might be scoffing at first glance like I did and say, well, come on, Paul, you wrote that 2,200 years ago. Like, what does near mean, right? What, it mean, what does it mean to be close by? But near here is a relative term. Near to an astronomer saying that Mars is gonna be nearby on this certain date is different to the three-year-old that's on the location and saying, are we there yet, right? Um, two different concepts of, of near. And what Paul is saying is we know, we know from the scripture that we don't know the time, the place, and when it's gonna happen, right? He's gonna come like a thief in the night in a sense, but we live in light of eternity. We live in light of knowing that he is coming and that, it is, that he will come to set the record straight and every score will be settled for he is returning and we hold it to that promise and we live our lives in response to that. Going back to slide, Kyle, and looking at verse six, Paul continues on and he's being almost pushy here in a sense, just filled with these last minute commands to the church of Philippi. Do not be anxious about anything But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And for an anxious person like myself, one that is inclined to worry and to panic and try to solve things and wrestle with them, you think to myself, all right, Paul, you kind of roll your eyes for a second because, come on, you know, what about the kids? What about the bills? What about my future? What about school? How am I just not gonna be anxious for some of us, it's almost second nature, nature, a habit, a routine, a normal part of our life that we've made a staple to be anxious, to worry, and to panic about these things. And so at first glance, a command that says, do not be anxious about anything, seems trite and cliche, like, great, I know that, Paul. Um, I'm aware. It's not like I desire to be anxious. It's not like I like this feeling. No one ever is saying, yes, thank you, God, for this anxiety. Thank you that my heart is racing. Thank you that I'm in a panic, Right? It's not a mindset that we wish to be in or that we want to exhibit in, but sometimes it just finds us, right? And sometimes the things of life and the situations of life are so real that it does create an anxiety within us. And so we almost look at that and go, yeah, cool advice, Paul, but it's just not quite that easy. The anxiety that Paul is talking about here at its core in the sense that it is written about is this lack of faith or that lack of trust that God is able to, in our seasons and situations. It's a fretting of being overloaded with care and concern to the extent that it cripples us, that it almost causes us to become undone where it paralyzes us and it, the word almost essentially means to tear us apart to where we become divided. And it becomes this consuming thing that we feel like we have to solve, overcome, to wrestle with, to deal with and if we don't then we can't just shut our minds off and we almost feel trapped. And Paul here is not writing to make light of that He's not here to trivialize that, but his command is this, is that Christ's desire and what he won on the cross is that you would be free from that. 
that our minds and our attitudes and our hearts wouldn't wrestle with that or deal with that, that we would be set free from that. What does he say in Ephesians 5.18? He says, do not become drunk on wine, but rather be filled by the Spirit. And his desire is that we would be controlled by the Spirit and the Spirit would give us his peace in those situations and that we would walk in those seasons that we wouldn't have to fear, we wouldn't have to fret, we wouldn't have to become undone by the things in life. And so here's the thing, Paul doesn't just ignore those things, he doesn't just say, he just doesn't dismiss them and say, you know what, that's not worth worrying about or that's not worth panicking about or that's not really a valid concern or a real concern because certainly in life there are things that call our attention that we should be concerned about, that we should worry about, that we should care about, right? It's not just this attitude of, well, be indifferent, because that can create an attitude of coldness and hostility. You know what they are in your own life, you know? It's good to have concern about the health of your marriage, right? It's loving and kind to care about the future and the outcome of what's going on with your children, we do wish to know and understand what our future may hold in some aspect. It's hard when it's, we can't grasp anything or lay hold or we can't see it. And so it's not this thing of, well, you really shouldn't have those things in your mind and you should just, you know, give it to God and um, those circumstances just really shouldn't matter to you. In fact, if all of it said was do not be anxious about anything, I think that would leave us helpless and that's just something nice to say, but I think a lot of us would still wrestle and deal with some of those things. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul doesn't just let us sit there and say, you know what, um, that's what it is. He has a command of what we are to do with those things. What are we supposed to do with the things in life that right now are on the forefront of our mind that create worry, panic in us, the things that we just don't know what to do with, the things that are beyond our control, the things that we don't know how to handle, what are we to do with them? Paul says this, but in every situation, you take all of the cares, all of the burdens, all of the worries, everything that afflicts you, everything that concerns you, everything that's running through your mind. He says, in all those things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Kyle, go two slides over real quick. Once again, Peter says the same thing. He says, cast all of your anxiety on him. Cast because he cares for you. Ephesians 6 says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Jesus himself addresses this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we think to ourselves, right, oh, come on, why do I got to pray about it, you know? Isn't this God all-knowing? Isn't he aware of what's going on in my life? Doesn't he know the hardships that I'm facing? Doesn't he see and care? And why doesn't he just do something about it? And prayer... What it does is this, is that it turns us in our hearts and it causes us to defer and to bow down and to surrender to the one. And it's all about the positioning of ourselves as taking those cares, those demands, and those things that are just beyond our control and we take them out of our hands and we turn them and we give them to him. It's like this, right? If I needed help moving this conference room table, um, and lifting it, it's like, come on, Marianne, get up here, come help me, you know? Come on, Marianne, give me a hand, right? No, right? I say, hey, Dan, 
get your butt up here, help me lift this, right? <laughs> Why? Because, yeah, yeah. because there's where the muscle lies. There's where the strength lies. I call upon the one that is sufficient and able to help me with the things that I need help with, right? And so in our prayer lives, we do the same things. In our own power, in our own strength, in our own ability, we can't handle it. We can't control it. We can't do anything about it. But we call upon the one that is able, the one who is strong, the one that does have the muscle, the one that is the rock, that is dependable and can be counted upon. And so when we pray and when we cast our cares and our anxieties upon him, that's what we're doing. We're calling in the one that can carry the load. And so that's what prayer does, and that's why we pray. It's a surrendering and a positioning of our hearts to the one that is able to meet the demands of the weight that we have to carry. Now, in verse five, Paul wasn't meaning the nearness as far as the judgment, or he was meaning nearness as the judgment of the Lord or the coming of the day of the Lord, but it's also important to remember here, why do we pray? Why do we lift our things up in prayer? Why? Because it also reminds us that God is near, that he does hear our prayers, that he does see, that he doesn't overlook them. He is acutely aware of the exact situations and the things that you are facing and the things that you are walking through, and he is near in a physical sense. Psalm says this, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And sometimes we gotta dismiss that lie and that thought that God doesn't care, that God isn't, doesn't wanna hear my prayers, that God doesn't give a hoot about what's going on. The Lord is near. If you will call upon him, he'll demonstrate that he is near. When Hannah in the Old Testament was crying for a child and so much so that people thought she was drunk because she was in hysteria and they just said, you know what, what's wrong with that lady? but she was crying out to God and pleading God for a child. Guess what? God answered a prayer. When Daniel walked into the lion's den and he was about to face death, guess what? God was near. When Ruth and Naomi were stranded in a foreign land with no one to take care of them, no one to provide, and no one to meet their needs, guess what? He showed up in the provision and Boaz came. And God saw them. And that God answers your prayers. That God is near to you. That God hears your requests and your petitions and the things that you need. But here's something to remember. Don't measure how God answers your prayers by how he answers someone else's prayers. God may answer John's prayers, right? John may have a certain prayer and God may show up right away and deliver that and do that and John may, or God may set John free of a sin right then and there, right on the spot, right? And then I ask for the same thing and you know, God, just take this away from me, just remove this from me and let it be known and God might not answer it the same way for me and I might wrestle with it more or deal with it more it might still be a thing that I have to battle guess what it doesn't mean that God hasn't answered my prayer it's just that he answers that and how he sees fit in his sovereignty and what is best for me Paul had a radical conversion where he was knocked off a horse blinded and he went from living a life of darkness to living a life in the kingdom and declaring God's gospel but guess what it says in Corinthians that he prayed and pleaded three times for God to remove a certain situation from him and it says that God did not So the God that was able to deliver him and save him and rescue him from darkness also allowed Paul to wrestle and struggle with a certain issue. And what did Paul say at the end of that? He said, I learned to boast in my weakness. I learned to take this before the Lord and boast in it. Why? Because his grace is sufficient for where I lack. And so recognize that God may not answer your prayers in the way that he answers someone else's, but it doesn't mean he's not answering. On a funny note, I gotta throw this in there. Just ask Erica about answered prayer. Erica comes in this morning and she was ecstatic. Joyce, Becky, and Stefan had flown to Colorado on Saturday to go skiing. 
and uh, Erica does not like to be away from her mother and wanted Joyce back, so she was praying that they would close skiing in Colorado. So Erica runs in and says, Pastor Ryan, did you hear? The governor of Colorado shut down, shut down skiing in Colorado. My mom's flying home Monday, and I'm run, running and dancing and jumping around, right? Um, so Erica's prayer was answered. I'm not sure Stefan and Becky's desire to ski and their request was answered in that way. Um, and they might not be related, but God answers our prayer. He is near. And so God will answer your prayers. And the second point is this. Sometimes how God answers your prayer is in the form of another person. The good Samaritan, right? The man alongside the path, beaten and broken down. What? He sends it through the good Samaritan. When Moses was afraid and poor in speech and he didn't know what he was gonna do when he had to approach Pharaoh, what did God do? He gave him Aaron, who was to speak for him and to, who was gifted in that area. And so there are certain times and there are certain seasons where things where we are not skilled or we are not gifted or we can't seem to get it under wraps, but trust that sometimes God will work through another person to answer that prayer, right? And there might be times where we're worried or we're panicked or we're fearful beyond our control and where we need someone that is an expert and someone that can step in. And so don't be afraid to not think that that is an answer to prayer, that God has gifted people in that way and so to trust them in that. And so what happens? What happens when we take our cares, our concerns, our worries, and we give them to the Lord and we pray? Paul answers in verse seven with this. Go back a couple, Kyle. I'm keeping you on your toes today, I know. When you take those things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving and you present them to God, it says this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is that when we defer, is that when we surrender and when we give those things up, we are being assured of Christ's ability to handle them, that we don't have to shoulder the load. And what he's granting us is his peace. I think if you go a couple verses over, Jesus on his way to the cross, about, he's telling his disciples, I'm about to die on the cross. And he says this in John 14. Go over a couple, Kyle. One more. Peace I leave with you my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so when Christ walked to the cross and when he died, you know what he delivered and what he wanted to give to you is his peace. He was thinking about your peace. Not only your eternal peace and not only the peace that comes when you get to enjoy heaven with him, but your peace right here, right now in these situations, right? That God desires to give you his peace. That one. And so we can trust him. Why? Because if he was a substitute for the great, the biggest thing that caused tension and lack of peace in our life was our sin and our separation from God. But when he delivered in the cross and when he set us free of that, then we can trust him to bring peace to our situations and to our storms. And guess what? Here's the thing about peace. It's not something that you just muster up on your own strength. It's not just something you manufacture. It's not just an attitude. You say, what, today I am gonna have peace. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. Listen, it's a peace that passes human understanding, right? And so it's not something that we can just get or obtain. It's a thing and a working of his Holy Spirit in us that he's given us his Holy Spirit. And what his Holy Spirit brings is peace. That no matter the circumstances, no matter the things that I face, no matter what my human emotions might tell me, and no matter what I might see with my natural eyes, I'm praying for the peace that passes all understanding. Why, what will it do? It'll guard our hearts and our minds. It protects us. It's like a shield. 
that stands watch over us, and it's a gift from him above. It was God's peace and their knowledge of him that allowed three Hebrew boys to walk into a fire. It was God's peace and his confidence in who God was that allowed David, a 13-year-old boy, to walk down with a slingshot to face a giant. And it's God's peace that is granted to you amongst your storms and amongst your circumstances and amongst the struggles and the things that you fight with that's gonna guard you and protect you and watch out for you. God's not sleeping. None of this has sounded an alarm that's like, God's like, oh, I guess I better handle this and better pay attention and oh, now it's on the forefront of my mind. You have a God that is sovereign in control and knows exactly what he's doing at every moment in time and season and so this too also is under his watch. And we know that he's working. We know that he's near. And we know that his Holy Spirit has come to be a deposit in us. And so let it create an attitude of peace in us. We don't cave to a spirit of fear, but what? We live by a spirit of love and sound mind. Fear and anxiety is a common unbelief that takes a stab at whether or not God is able or can handle this or whether he is gonna do something about it. But know today, listen, that he is able. The cross speaks for it, right? That he is able to meet your needs and to meet your demands and that he cares for the things that you're facing. And the gospel speaks that he is able to take care of the things that afflict you. And so this morning, I love what it says when Jesus says at the end of Matthew eleven thirty, 30, it says that I will come to give you rest. Man. How many times do I have to call upon that, right? That my mind's racing, my mind's going on, and I'm playing out every scenario, every situation, trying to make it work and happen, and it's just like you get burnt out, you get frustrated, and it affects your whole life, and I was like, come on, that's not God. That's not him. Why? Because he says that my mind will be at peace and that I will have rest, and it's a thing that he's built into our life, right, that we can rest assured, that he's meeting our needs, that he's taking care of us and the things that are going on in your minds and your hearts and the things that you face, listen, take rest in him, that he's sufficient, right? Why does Paul say you can take all of your things to him? Why does it say cast all of your cares and make every request? Why? Because he knows that the one that you're taking them to is sufficient enough to handle them. I have a picture I found a couple weeks ago that I thought fit this. It was a quote from Matthew Henry. There is enough in God right? There's enough in his supply. There's enough in his bounty that he is enough to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstance on earth. There is a depth in him that you can't exhaust, that your needs are not greater than, right? And so he is your supply. He is your source. And so if there's things today, right, that you're battling with, Submit them to the Lord. Cast all of your anxiety upon him and pray, God, that by his supernatural power, his peace will guard your heart. Derek's gonna come and lead us in a hymn. And it was a hymn written from Philippians chapter 121 by Fanny Crosby where Paul was saying to live and to die is to both gain, all right? And Fanny Crosby wrote the song, Blessed Assurance, right? Jesus is mine. And so what do we take to heart this morning? Despite the circumstances, despite a coronavirus, despite all the fear and the panic and what's going on, what? Guess what? Jesus is mine. And ain't nothing taking that away from us. 
right? And so let us be assured this morning, let us be reminded this morning, let us be refreshed in knowing that he is ours. And so would you stand with us and would you join in singing as we go this morning? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. Father, so in the days ahead, in the moments and the temptations and the trials when we're tempted to think, panic, or worry, Father, we would sing, blessed assurance, you're ours. 
And Father, we pray in those moments that we would surrender and yield and pray to you, and Lord, you would deliver and your Holy Spirit would bring peace that passes our understanding, our natural wisdom, that you would grant it unto us. And so, Father, we pray that the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you. Let it be gracious to you. Let the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And in that peace we go. Amen.